0: We invite our children now to be dismissed for their time of worship as the rest of us bow together and pray. Be near us, Lord, wherever we go. Teach us what you would have us do. Direct whatever we think or say and lead us in the narrow way. For we know, God, that the narrow way is sometimes, oftentimes, always, really, a challenge to who we are and what it means to be your children. So grant us courage and wisdom for the living of these days. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Some years ago, my children gave me the gift of a unique world map it was a map where when you hung, hung it on a wall where the words were right side up, the image of the continents were upside down. Do you see what I'm saying? So that South America was up and North America was down, so that Africa was up and Europe was down. The cartographer had a little note in the corner. observed that map drawing, much like history writing, is somewhat uh, subjective and is much a form of interpretation. He noted that it's no coincidence that, at least in the years that I grew up, the world map at the front of the classroom, made in the USA, had the USA front and center, with Asia sort of split in half on each end. Do you remember that map? He said, it's no coincidence that it's that way. Something in the center is obviously the most important. Something on top has more value than something on the bottom. But the cartographer noted that in space, there is no up or down or center to a globe. So it would be perfectly valid for South America and Africa to be on top and the United States and Europe to be down below. I hung the map, it's been a number of years ago, I don't remember the occasion, but I hung the map in the commons before one Sunday, and later that week as I walked by, I noticed that it was gone. And I could see that it had been rather violently torn down, and I never saw the map again. Apparently, for someone, it was too unfamiliar Too disorienting and therefore too offensive. I want to talk this morning about the cultural map that we live by in the United States today or in our culture today. We have a cultural map that says material things can bring you happiness, material things and money can bring you happiness. Now, we don't say that directly. We have a lot more sophistication than to say it directly. But when you look at the way we spend our time, the way we orient our lives... The energy and concerns we place in everything from how we organize our homes to how we listen to presidential debates, it's clear that what focuses all of our attention is this question of material things bringing us happiness. This map, I want to suggest, orients everything that we have. And so that if the original American dream was the pursuit of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, the new American dream says something about acquiring more than we have, having that next shiny object. Alexis de Tocqueville, in his famous visit to the U.S. in the 1800s from France, observed Americans are extremely eager in the pursuit of the immediate material pleasures and are always discontented with positions they occupy. They think of nothing but of ways of changing their lot and bettering it, and it makes them wearisome. This was a Frenchman who said this. Can you imagine? And yet I suspect he's right. It is no coincidence that Apple Computer came out with a whole string of products prefaced by the letter I, iMac, and iBook, and iPhone, and iPad, and iPod. And here I'll speak confessionally, the next shiny object, you feel like you just need to have it. So before I made this trip to Morocco... I felt like surely I would die if I didn't take an iPod with me. Or an iPad, that is. I I just, I had to have it. And I, I was really getting pretty good at justifying it to myself, even though there was an iPad available in my own home to take. I felt like I needed my own. I went to the person, or to the finance committee, and said, Surely there's some money that I, I it, until a voice said, Will you get a grip? <laughs> so I want to publicly thank my wife for letting me take her <laughs> iPad. I would love to be able to blame this either on Wall Street or Madison Avenue, but frankly, it's a family tradition. It's our family tradition. You look in our family album all the way back to Adam and Eve, and you see this strain, this cultural map that defines how we live, that we need to have more, hoard more, preserve more, acquire more. It's the roadmap we use to orient ourselves by. And yet, and yet despite our cultural Map that has been presented to us as good and right. The Bible, and specifically Jesus, tells us this is not why we were created, and this is not how we were created to live. The map for how to be fully human has been turned upside down, if you will, and direction matters in this case. It makes a difference. This is why the early church developed what they called the seven deadly sins. You've heard of them. And if you think about those seven deadly sins, I find it interesting that three out of the seven have to do with money and possessions. The sin of envy, wanting what others have. And as we read a few weeks ago from the Epistle of James, it's the source of our fighting and even our wars. Envy and greed, even when we have enough that we keep consuming and wanting more and refusing to share what we have and gluttony, which is not just about eating. It's about the reality that even when we have enough, we keep on consuming until we get sick. Someone noted that the affluence of our culture has led to a new disease that he refers to as affluenza. Affluenza. The sickness of having too much stuff. And you know the story. Perhaps you're living the story of how we try to keep up with everyone else. And if we're not able to do it in our time, we get these things called credit cards and we pay into the future or we buy into the future in hopes of keeping up with everyone else. And we realize at some point that when the Bible talks of sin and a sickness unto death, These aren't just doctrinal, theological ideas. They're reality. They get lived out in our very lives. We recognize what Jesus meant in that parable of the sower and the seeds when he compared the seed that fell among the thorns and talks about the lure of money and the focus on things that chokes the life out of us. You've seen it, or you've lived it. The Bible says to us clearly that we will never arrive at that place of peace and deep contentment using the familiar map as it has been presented to us by our culture. As they say down in Texas, You can't get there from here. You have to go somewhere else to get there. The writer of Ecclesiastes says the lover of money is not content with money, nor the lover of wealth with gain. All is vanity. The only way to get there, the only way to get there, the biblical witness tells us clearly, is by this word called metanoia, repentance turning the map around, a map that doesn't focus on self and stuff, but rather a map that allows us to see who we are, who we are as children of God, loved as we are with what we have, knowing that As the epistle said, we bring nothing into this world. We take nothing out of it. And in that nothingness, we are loved. It's called grace. And only grace, only grace can silence that voice within us that says, I need more things. Only grace can allow us to silence that voice so that we can hear the other voice that calls from deep within us, saying, love neighbor as you love yourself. Give, and it will be given to you a good measure. Press down. Orient your life. Use your strength and energy and reputation to seek first the kingdom of God and God's righteousness and justice and trust that all the other things will be added to you as well. Refuse to store up your treasures on earth where moth corrupts and where thieves steal. I'm quoting Jesus here. I hope you recognize him. Here at Highland, you know, we are about to enter into some discussions about our 2013 budget as well as discussion even today about a major renovation of our building. We're going to be talking about money. But some ground rules that we will use are these. We won't judge each other. I'm not here to tell you what to give, and you're not here to judge what your neighbor should give. This is a season of self-examination. Nor is it a season to feel guilty and shamed by what we can or can't give. It is, thirdly, I want to suggest, not simply a season of fundraising. If all we do is raise money, we will miss a spiritual opportunity among us. Fred Craddock says one of the worst sins of the church is silliness, by which I think he means focusing on the trivial and missing the moment. This is an opportunity for us to consider who we are as a people, who and what we love, and how our first love gets expressed in how we live and how we use the resources that we have. Do we live contentedly and peacefully in our skin? Are we or and are we able to look beyond our own needs to the needs of the larger community and world around us? It seems to me one of the key components of being spiritual is the strength and maturity to focus our resources outside of ourselves. Outside of ourselves. So this is a season for self-assessment. To ask, am I and is my family going down a path that fulfills our best and most beautiful purpose? Or, as Jesus put it, have the cares of the world and the lure of wealth choked out the word? And maybe it's so for you. If so then what will you do? What steps can you take? Would you be willing to reorganize your life and your goals and your commitments? Many of you know I returned Friday night from the nation of Morocco in Northwest Africa. Um, Let me just answer to all of you I don't know how to to respond to the the question, was it a good trip? Um, Good is not the right question. Um, It was a powerful trip. It was a transforming trip. And I thank the church for sending me and Karen Womack and Cheryl Davis who returned today. And we need to hold them in our prayers. A couple of other questions I'll answer for all of you. Yes, there is a Ricks in Casablanca. Uh, I didn't get to visit it, so no, I don't know if Sam is still playing it there. But there is a Ricks, and yes, there are lots of leather goods for sale. We spent most of our time on trains, going between five different cities to see the plight of refugees, a plight that I've come to realize is because of unjust practices like colonialism and corporate exploitation, we've got a lot to talk about. But the other thing that I saw and the other voice that I heard came from the sub-Saharan university students, Christian mostly who come to Morocco largely to go to grad school. These are the the top students from various countries, and because of an agreement, they're able to go to the United States or to France or to Morocco. What I learned is that the opportunities to go to the United States and to France are sold off to other people in sort of a, a way that leaders make money, I guess so that even top students, the top students, go to Morocco, to Casablanca, to Rabat, to Oujda, to Fez, to Marrakesh, to the various universities. After they get enrolled in their classes, the very first thing these students do on their own, through no initiative, through no, through no plan, the first thing they do is to find the one Protestant Christian community in the city and go and join in and become a part. They're there faithfully. They're there not just for worship, but they show up and they put their lives on the line. These are graduate students and they sign up and they have organized and run a program for refugees in their particular area. They give of their money what little they have as students. They they buy food, they organize, they distribute the food, they listen to the refugees, they honor and respect them, they'll play with their children, they do whatever it takes to embody God's love for them. And I kept thinking, you're graduate students. You don't have to do this. You're studying to be a lawyer or a a physician or to do international law. You surely can think that you have time to just do nothing. You don't have to. But it's who they are. Their lives are not their own. Somehow, their cultural map as Christians has compelled them to say, what time I have, I give. What resources I have, I give. I will share what is mine is yours, and I will share it. They embody grace. They have a higher purpose. They don't give the leftovers. They don't give a discretionary time or leftover money. They give off the top all the way. And here's the kicker. These are the happiest people I've ever met. These are the most actual, actualized, most, most well-formed, most beautiful people I've ever met. And I was both inspired and threatened. I'll tell you, on one level, they challenge me. They're a threat to my familiar it's all about me map. I understand why someone tore the map down, the upside down map. Because it threatened their understanding. I get that now. But I also get that the right side up map feels real. And it feels good. And it feels incarnational. Embodying God. And something says, that's for you. That's what you need. Let's pray together. O Christ, who calls us to the narrow way. May we trust you enough to follow you. In this time, in this context, not only as individuals, but as Highland Baptist Church in 2012. In your holy name we pray. Amen.